The Bob Murphy Show, episode 201. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with David Howden, who is a fellow of the Mises Institute, and he's chair of the Department of Business and Economics and professor of economics at SLU's Madrid campus. He also was an academic vice president of the Ludwig von Mises Institute of Canada and the founding editor of the Journal of Prices and Markets. His most recent books in 2015, he edited with Per Byland, The Next Generation of Austrian Economics, Essays in Honor of Joseph T. Salerno. And then in 2014, he was an editor with Joe Salerno of The Fed at 100, A Critical View on the Federal Reserve System. So what we talk about in this interview is I wanted, because David's younger than the Austro-libertarians that typically make the podcast rounds. And so I wanted to showcase somebody who's, you know, gotten his PhD more recently. And just to show you folks, what is it that if, you, if you're into Austrian economics, you know, can you get a job? What can you work on? And as we'll see, the reason I like what David's been doing is he's gone into the financial sector, at least with his analysis. And I think that's an area where for more than a decade, when people ask me, hey, Dr. Murphy, I'm really into this stuff. But what, what do I do with it? What's, where can I take Austrian theory? I say it's, it's wide open. And so I'll get into that, I think, in the conversation with David. So I don't need to dwell on it here. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Dave Howden. Well, Dave, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. So can you tell us, as I would have explained in the introduction I've already recorded, part of the purpose of this one is to introduce the listeners to like the next generation, or maybe you're the next, the second generation, third generation, I don't know. But how did you get into, I guess, first of all, economics and Austrian economics? Like, were you, did you want to go to economics first and then Austrian stuff? Or was, was it the Austrian school that made you realize this is what I got to do for my career? Um, well, you know what, my path, I don't know if it's normal or not. I, I think it's a little bit normal. I was an undergrad and um, I was studying finance. So, you know, I was taking a lot of economics classes as well. And a lot of the pieces of the puzzles just didn't really fit all that well. And um, macro in particular, when I was kind of taking my macro sequence, it wasn't really jiving or making all that much sense. And now actually that I teach, um, now that I'm a professor and I'm teaching, you know, more or less mainstream macro, I think a lot of even mainstream macro profs have a lot of misgivings. There's a lot of holes when they're teaching it, but luckily nobody really notices. So, so I was an undergrad and I was kind of, you know, having a little bit of difficulty putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And then I, I found the Austrian school just a little bit serendipitously, um, same as everybody, I guess, through Mises Org. And then that was kind of that, I suppose. It answered a whole bunch of questions and then raised a whole bunch of other ones. And um, I finished, I got my degree and I didn't. Hey, Dave, can I stop for a second? Do you remember specifically like what kind of things 
were they in your macro classes that you were scratching your head about? Well, it was kind of this whole idea of um, the spending multiplier. You know, if you get into the whether you want to do the government spending multiplier, the tax multiplier, it just wasn't jiving. And then you know you have the theory, and then you have the the applied side of it. So when we look at the actual research, you know the the multiplier wasn't panning out the way that the theory is supposed to say it's going to pan out, right? Like the multiplier and, and most of the applied work is, well, depending on who you're reading, um, is less than one. And that's not what the theory says at all. So even as, a, as an undergrad student coming in kind of my third year, I was having a lot of trouble with the theory because the evidence wasn't consistent with it. The micro side, I didn't have much of a problem with, to be honest with you. But the macro side was, you know, it was just introducing a whole bunch of questions. So that was, that's the specific example, actually, that now that I think about it, that got me, you know, pointed in that direction. And I guess one other one, and it makes sense to me now, given the current direction that I'm on, is when you learn about money and banking and central banking and fractional reserve banking in particular, you know, there's a whole theory there of moral hazard and sowing the seeds for a disaster. And it doesn't really get touched on much in your, you know, in your mainstream money and banking classes. Mm -hmm. So those were probably the two issues that really got me searching, but it was the macro and it was the, the, the multiplier first and foremost that, that, uh, that made me force me to go and find some alternative answers. Okay. Yeah. And then I don't know, did you, do you remember what the resolution is? Like I know, for example, when I was reading man economy and state, and Rothbard has a little section where he goes through and, you know, quote, proves that the, the income of the person reading the book has a huge multiplier effect on the economy. And if we could just give the person reading Rothbard's book an extra, whatever, thousand dollars, then the U.S. economy is going to be booming. And, it, it, and the point, of course, is he used the same methods to, quote, prove that as, as you would learn. It, it, so it's a little different for people who read it now. They might say, wait, that's not how my professor taught it. But it, like in the 60s, that really was the way that they got across the multiplier concept. Yeah, well, an interesting thing at the time and kind of man economy is I read human action first. I shouldn't have. Um, I should have read man economy state first. But anyway, after I read it and then as I got thinking about the multiplier, then I was like, well, why? Why is it the government spending multiplier? Because, yeah, theoretically, you could just give this money to anybody, pick a group. And it doesn't much matter, right? So why don't you do an investment multiplier? Why don't you do, yeah, why don't you do a book reader multiplier? And it's the same logic that you follow through, but it doesn't really get extended because in macro you're so you're so accustomed to thinking in, you know, these large groups. So you have a group of investors who are mostly, you know, not active; they're like passive, right? Just responding to interest rates. And then you have a group of consumers, which is also not active; they're just passively responding to whatever their marginal propensity to consume is and paying their taxes. But then you got this government sector, which in you know in every macro model is is active, right? It's not just passively responding to everything else. So uh, so that was it was kind of strange when I it got me thinking in a totally different way after I read Man Economy of State on that specific topic because I thought, well, why is it that we're so um, why is it that in all the models it's always got to be the government sector that's you know designed to be the one that you're going to play around with? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't why isn't it investors? Right, right. Okay, and so then I, I sort of interrupted you. So you're that's so you were in still undergrad. You had you were studying finance. So was your degree then in actual finance, or did you switch to economics, or how did that 
happen? No, I followed through. So my, my degree's in finance. And then when I graduated, this is in the early 2000s. So when I graduated, I wanted to go to grad school for economics because then I got really into it, right? Like you start reading and every answer that you receive creates a new question. So it's just this, you know, it's just this endless trail of, of reading, mostly, you know, articles on Mises Org, obviously. So I wanted to go to grad school for economics. And then, you know, as I looked into it, there wasn't, I wanted to go to grad school for the right reasons. Like I didn't just want to go to grad school to, you know, because I didn't know what else to do or because I didn't have job opportunities and I couldn't find the exact program that I wanted. So I kind of put that on the back burner and then I, then I went and worked. So I moved uh, from Canada. So I ended up in Toronto. I worked I was in the mutual fund industry for a while. And then I got into foreign exchange. Yeah, in the early 2000s, it was kind of really becoming a big thing. So I did a couple of years in industry. And then I stumbled upon um, Jesus Huerta de Soto, a Spanish-Austrian economist. I read his book, um, Money, Bank, Credit, and Economic Cycles. It got translated into English in 2006. And I basically read it you know, as soon as it was translated. And... Um, at that point, I was sold, and I, I, uh, yeah, I shot him an email, and you know, we went back and forth a little bit, and then he said, "Well, you know, if you're looking to go to grad school for economics, you ever consider coming to Spain, and you can study with me." And I never really considered that in my life, to be honest. But I, in retrospect, it seems pretty rash. But I said, "Yeah, okay, why not?" So I gave my notice and packed my bags and moved to Spain. That was 2007, I suppose. Can you go through, I don't know how much, like, like so originally, were you considering what, just Canadian and U.S. grad schools? I was actually, I was looking at, Brit, yeah, British, Canadian, and, and U.S. Um, well, that's right, because you Canadians still have an affinity for the mother country, whereas we have just decided that no, no means no, King George. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I wanted something that was outside of the box, so a lot of the universities that I was looking at when I finally decided, okay, I want to, I want to go to grad school for econ. Then, since all of the programs are mainstream, probably the mainstream programs that are the most open to studying things that are outside the box are economic history programs, mm-hmm. right? And so, if you're going to study that outside of the U.S., there's many more options than there are in the U.S., right? Right, right. And so that's what. And in in the U.K., there's there's a lot of that going on. So those were. And actually, I didn't want to stay in Canada. I wanted to do something that was, yeah, I wanted to get the heck out of Canada mm-hmm. because nobody, nobody that's there wants to be there. Right. So, so, um, so yeah, that was it. I was between a couple of universities in the UK and then I was looking at the States and, but nothing was really exactly what I wanted. And so that's, that's why I, uh, I shelved it for a little while. Okay. And so then for people who are curious, if you go to DeSoto's program, are the courses in English? I assumed they were going to be. <laughs> this sounds like an interesting story. Because, of course, everything's in English, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, everybody speaks English, which is, you know, that's kind of true. Everybody speaks some degree of English, but the program itself was in Spanish. So when I arrived, I can remember my very first day in Spain, and I'd been to Europe, um, and I'd also been to Spain, so I don't know why I wasn't more aware of this. But, I, you know, I came here my first day and I just assumed that everybody would be speaking English or could speak English, blah, blah, blah. And that wasn't the case at all. So I had to pick up in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, if you're going to learn a language, like learning it in a bar is really difficult, right? Because it's, it's slang and there's noise and all that. But when you're sitting in a classroom and you're learning 
something that's technical, most of the terminology is, is you know, they're cognates in, in English or Romance languages. And so I, I picked it up, also did some classes and studied and all that, but I picked it up on, um, yeah, when I, when I came here. And thankfully, I mean, in economics, like any discipline, everything that you're going to read is in English or available in English, right? Mm-hmm. So at the very least, I could, I had access to everything in English and then I'd go to classes and pick up Spanish. And so I kind of balanced it out. But that was, it was a real uphill battle my first year, my first two years. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's that's good. So <laughs> you learned something else too besides uh, monetary and, and banking theory. Um so I guess why don't you just real briefly for the listeners who aren't familiar with DeSoto, can you explain how he now figures in? Because fans of the Mises Institute, wherever like they they know him, certainly people who get into the fractional reserve banking debate know of him. But I I get the sense his name. A, a lot of people in broader circles don't really. They might have heard his name, but they really know what he's all about. So he's as I found out when I came here. He's an academic but he also runs an insurance business, Mm -hmm. which is the family business. And I like this because as I got to know him a little bit more, and given, you know, Austrian, the Austrian school's roots, if you go back to Menger, Menger's whole emphasis is being real world, right? Not, Not being ivory tower and actually looking out there and seeing what's happening and then explaining it. And, you know, which most economists that you talk to are pretty well separated from the real world. So when I went and I got to know him, he's really down to earth because he's he's in the real world he runs runs an insurance business and insurance is kind of you know really well insurance is a very special business because there's there's high degrees of fiduciary duty there's an awful lot of actuarial science going on behind the scenes that if you're running a company you have to know and then it's got the regular finance side of things involved as well and so as i got to know him there was there was that side going on which whenever he spoke it was always it was never disconnected from the real world if, if that makes sense. It was never high-level theory, or if it was high-level theory, it was always, here's where it fits into the actual puzzle, or here's, here's you know, where you can actually see this theory taking place. He's got a lot of interests, right? So most people know him for his writings on fractional reserve banking. But probably of every, you know, poker he's got in the fire, that's one of the less common things that he writes about, or that he would... Mm-hmm that he really should be known for. So he's really on in terms of, you know, entrepreneurship theory. He's got great contributions going on there. And in the history of economic thought, he's got a lot going on there. And on kind of the law side of things, he's got a lot going on there. And just as a background, um, you know, for for non-Spanish listeners, the common undergrad degree that you do in Spain is law and economics, the two of them together. Mm-hmm. And now that seems pretty natural to me, um, but it wasn't intuitive to me that those would, that would be a you know necessarily a good pairing. And so he comes out of this university system where you know as an undergrad he he did law and economics both, and then you can you can see that in all his writings. You know, there's legal aspects that interplay with the economic aspects, and it's like a unified whole. And so anyway, when I when I came and I was studying under him, and then what I you know, moved on to my dissertation stage and he was, he was my um, director. He, it's funny in retrospect, he would, he would give me these books, he would give me these readings and they'd be all over the place. Right. And I, I had a hard time seeing what the central theme was. And then it was only in retrospect that I could see how all the pieces of the puzzle all fit together. You know, you expect something out of your, out of your dissertation director. 
And at the time, it was really difficult for me to see how beneficial it was having him because everything seemed a little bit scattered. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's just you know throwing readings and books. I mean, that's what your director does, just throwing this stuff at you. But then in retrospect, for my own academic formation, it was really, it was great because I got this huge range of things that ultimately all came together into this. They fit into the common theme of law and economics and why why they're important for one another and why each field can't neglect one another. And so for my personal path, I took, you know, more recently, I'm, you know, I'm into fractional reserve banking and, and monetary economics, but it's always informed by that legal aspect. Right. And I, I just remember that too, that when I started reading his, you know, his book that you were mentioning, the one that got translated and that's how you were introduced to him, that it doesn't jump right into like, oh, fractional reserve banking causes a business cycle. It was like Roman bailment law and stuff like that. And, you know, let's look at the evolution of, you know, people when they put wheat in silos and what the, how the contractual relationships and what were the assumptions in the common law system. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, I thought we were going to do economics here. And then, but you realize as you're reading it, like why that's, you know, in his mind, no, this, you, you need to know this stuff to frame the debate. Yeah. Do you know what it's similar to is when you read human action, you know how the first, I don't know, quarter of the book is the, the hardest part to get through because it's just philosophy. Right. Yeah. And a lot of um, debates that don't seem relevant anymore, but were at the time. And, you know, when you start reading this book, which is supposed to be about economics, you, you have to delve through all this philosophy first, because for Mises, you couldn't separate these two aspects. Mm -hmm. You needed to have the sound philosophical foundation for the economic analysis to follow. And so now with retrospect, I understand that that mindset where it comes from. And in the Anglo world, we're pretty pigeonholed, right? Like mm -hmm. you're an economist and that's, that's it. You're not going to, if you want to do it for your hobby, if you want to read some, some, some legal theory or some history or some philosophy, that's great, but you don't do it professionally. And, um, but this is, this is common on the continent still that, you know, people have these, there's this interplay between the disciplines, I guess, which right. is still recognized. And certainly in my case, you're, you're right that I, went from thinking like almost even telling people, hey, you know what, when you go to read human action, just skip the first part and get right into the economics because like, I'm afraid we're, I'm going to lose them or something. But now, having read it several times, you know, written a study guide and my book choice was going through it. And it's, I, not only do I like understand why he did it, but I agree with him that, oh yeah, you need to to do this. Like you need to have the right philosophical moorings and foundations to to build this edifice on. And so likewise, too, I, I wonder, did you have, do you have a similar thing now with the Soto where you realize it's, in other words, because he had a nice, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was an interesting thing early in his book where he says something along the lines of, you know, if it turns out, if we can demonstrate in this book that, I don't know if he uses the phrase fractional reserve bank or if that's how they translated, but what, you know, you and I would call fractional reserve banking is actually systematic theft under, you know, any standard legal framework of, you know, the, from the common law approach or whatever, historically, it shouldn't surprise us that that causes economic instability. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, they're not hermetically sealed things. Whereas, yeah, a lot of economists, you can see, like, they just worry about incentives and stuff like that. And they don't worry about, like, like in the, law, the standard, quote, law and economics approach, they'll do stuff like, well, is it more efficient for the mugger to have your money or for you? And, Normally, most will come down on the side of, no, you should get to keep your money, not the mugger, because, hey, just transferring the money is just a zero-sum thing and blah, blah. But n no part in the analysis to say, well, it's, it's your money, so yeah, probably you should get to keep it. Like, no, no, that's not economics, man. Don't smuggle in your moral judgment. So it's just, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. The, uh, well, I'll tell you, now it's obvious to me that you need that legal foundation or that philosophical foundation, and they're not unrelated, right, before you before you dive into economics, because economics is not just something that comes out of nowhere, right? Like all that, every theory, every facet of a theory that you develop has some kind of foundation. So, so okay, I'll tell you a little story. I and Philip Bagus, um, we wrote an article once upon a time on, on fractional reserve banking, and we sent it to a law journal, a law and economics journal, or a business law journal, I guess. I can't much remember. And um, the referee report came back, and it was very favorable. And it said, well, I can't really see anything that's wrong with this argument, but um, it's not really relevant because we can just construct contracts however we want. I mean, we just send it to the lawyers and they just, they just write up the contract and whether it's contradictory or not, it doesn't just, it doesn't really matter because we can, we can just, you know, keep putting in, in clauses Mm -hmm. into this contract that will account for these different contingencies. And that was the referee report. And for me, this is, this is pretty crazy because, you know, if you take a class in jurisprudence, the theory of law, you don't just make contracts, right? There's, there's even undergrad business students, you know, when they take their business law class, they learn these are the, these are the fundamental points of contract law that need to be satisfied to make them legally binding or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have an actual law professor, I suppose, refereeing this article saying that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't much matter because we'll just make the contract however we want. And that's, that's that. And so I guess the, um, the point I'm trying to impress on the listener is that it's it's obvious to you why Mises goes through such pains at the beginning of human action to lay the philosophical foundation, or why Werther, you're right, he starts, and in that book, when you read it, and reviews of that book, when it made the rounds and it got reviewed, the reviewers didn't understand why, you know, what the heck does Roman law have to do with money and banking today? Mm. But He's using, you know, where to lays out a theory of law and he shows where it comes from and how it evolves and why it does matter. Um, it does matter. And by the time most people get to the stage where they can understand that, it's kind of too late, right? Like most economists. I'll, I'll tell you another story here in my department, in my business department. I get no pushback whatsoever. I'm not kooky in any way. I mean, I, I am kooky because I'm me, but I'm not kooky in any way because of my views on fractional reserve banking and the legality of the banking system, right? Or the ethicality of the banking system. In fact, most people in my department, especially finance professors, they buy this story completely. They think it makes, they think it's logical and it makes, you know, common sense and all that, but it's not an issue that professionally concerns them, Mm -hmm. right? Like dealing with these legal issues. Okay. That's somebody else's, um, that's somebody else's work, and it's it's not what I'm going to do because I'm a I'm a finance prof or I'm a I'm a monetary economist, and I'm just very very narrowly focused on you know what money is and what it does, mm-hmm. and that's a pity. Right, right. Okay, so then why don't we spend a minute on your dissertation there that you wrote under DeSoto is financial asset pricing under Knightian uncertainty. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit like how did you determine or you know settle on that particular topic and then what that entails? Yeah. So when I first got in touch with Huerta de Soto, in Spanish, you have two last names, by the way. Many people don't realize this. So his first last name is uh, Huerta and his second last name is de Soto. So he has a full last name called Huerta de Soto. He's actually got other last names too, but that's that's good enough. But when I first got in touch with him, the original uh, by the topic, way, I'm glad you clarified because people probably assumed that I was saying the last name DeSoto and you were calling him, since you're buddies, his first name Huerta, but you're saying, no, no, it's all his last name. 
That's, yeah, that's exactly it. And people, only Spaniards do this. Not South Americans don't even have this name in convention. So mm. it's a it's a very unusual thing, I guess, is what I'm saying. But his, his full last name would be Huerta de Soto. Okay. Or if you're going to call him something for short, you just say Huerta. Mm-hmm. So when I first got into contact with Huerta, the, the research question that I had was, and because I came out of, out of finance industry, we've got a beautiful, we, Austrian school economists, we've got this beautiful Austrian business cycle theory, which is phrased in terms of real capital goods. Mm-hmm. But you'll never buy, I mean, you, most of us are never going to buy a real capital good in our lives. We're going to invest, we're going to buy financial assets, we buy claims to those goods, but we don't actually buy the goods. And um, of course, they're related but it's not necessarily a one-to-one relationship. It might not even be a positive relationship. It's certainly not a, not a um, you know, time invariant relationship, this relationship between the capital assets and the financial claims to them. So when I went back through the history a little bit, you know, there's periods of time where, where the real economy does pretty well, but the financial economy is not doing so well, like your, your, your equity returns are kind of subpar. And then there's periods where the real economy is you know, really in the dumps but the financial economy seems to do pretty well. And so what I wanted to do was take that foundation of Austrian business cycle theory, which is phrased in terms of real capital goods, and I wanted to modify it to show what's going on on the financial asset side of things. So really what I wanted to do was go into um, you know, asset pricing and, and, and look at, um, I mean, narrowly, I was, I was really concerned with equity prices. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was my original question. And so... Can I stop you for a second, David? And just, I re, I'm remembering when I encountered you, I guess the Mises Institute must be where we met. I was really excited when I learned that's what you were working on because when younger Austrian enthusiasts would ask me as you know, a somewhat older, but not completely inaccessible person, hey, what should I work on? I would always tell them, I said, well, if it's, you know, if it's in your bailiwick, if it, if it interests you, I'm telling you the financial markets, that's huge. It's open for Austrians because... This you know standard neoclassical static equilibrium models they that just doesn't there's nothing you can do with that when you know because asset markets are all over the place and I also had been studying like the CAPM model and things so there was a certain elegance in the way the Chicago School approached it with efficient markets where but it was just so clearly wrong you know what I mean like it was it was a beautiful edifice they built but it was like you know leading people like Fama and stuff to say crazy stuff like oh there was no housing bubble. Because how do you even operationalize that? You know, if everyone mm-hmm. knew there was a bubble, then it would have crashed. So clearly it wasn't a bubble. You know what I mean? It was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, hijack. But, but it's, it's uh, no, it's true. And at that time, I mean, like I started grad school in, in 2007. And at that time, it was a turning point for the mainstream also, because mm-hmm. when, when the crisis happened, in investment theory, that's where the biggest revisions and the biggest soul searching and probably monetary econ and the relationship between finance and monetary economics in particular, that's where the biggest soul searching was really happening in the mainstream, right? And then I viewed it through this Austrian lens that we've got a really great theory to explain what's going on. And then, you know, you will see it in, you know, in the housing boom and everything. Whenever there was an Austrian writing about the business cycle, it was always, you know, you're searching for a real capital good that you can write about. So people are talking about the housing boom, mm-hmm. right? Because you can talk about stocks, but that's, you know, if you're really involved in the theory, those are, that's a different thing. Those are the claims to the assets, mm-hmm. not the assets that are being shifted on the structure of production itself. So, so I was really attracted to, yeah, coming up with a theory for, you know, what's, what's driving stock prices and what's, what's, um, you know, what's moving, what's shifting the vicissitudes 
of the market and things like that. So I brought that research question to where to DeSoto and I walked away with, you know, armfuls of books and articles and, and things like that to, to follow up. And when I finished a couple of years later, it was, um, yeah, the, the dissertation was called Financial Asset Pricing Under Knight and Uncertainty. I was very captivated, obviously, by, by Frank Knight and um, his attention to uncertainty and its, its role in profit, just as, you know, Mises focuses on this, or Mises is also mm. influenced by Knight also in this regard. And so that's where the Knightian uncertainty comes from. For, uh, can you, for the listener, like, specifically, were you endorsing this, the standard way it's taught of Knight distinguishing between risk and uncertainty? Yeah, I like that. And then I, I like, you know, differentiating between risk and uncertainty because that's, that's important, right? right. And so for the, can you just tell the listeners who don't know what that is? Oh, sure. So, so Knight, one of the great contributions in, in his book, Risk, Uncertainty and Profit, is that there is a, a um, distinction to be made between risk and uncertainty and risk is, is quantifiable. So you have a set of outcomes but you're not sure which outcome is actually going to happen, like rolling a dice. And so, of course, we know that um, for any die, when you roll it, you'll have uh, you know a one in six chance of, of getting whichever face coming up. That's a risky situation because we know the outcomes. We can enumerate them and we can express probabilities for them. And then there's this, this uncertainty where we either, we don't know the outcomes. We don't know the outcomes because there's a knowledge problem that we just can't express them or because they, they have a, a probability that can't be expressed. Mises extends and builds and kind of perfects this theory because Mises, he distinguishes between what he calls case and class probabilities. So a, a, a typical uncertain situation would be, you know, you don't know what the outcomes are. That could be like, uh, oh, I don't know, what's something where we don't know an outcome at all. Well, nobody really saw this virus coming. Right? That's kind of like a black swan. Or maybe you have, you know what the outcome is, but you can't assign a probability. So that's like a football match. You don't know mm-hmm. who's going to win, even though you know one of the teams is going to win or you'll, you'll have a draw, right? So, so Knight introduced this distinction between you know, the risky probabilities and the, the uncertainties of life. And, and that's important. And I, I think it's pretty straightforward, but in, in finance, it's not. And you know, in mainstream financial theory, it's not so straightforward and not so, not so obvious, right? And it's hard to operationalize uncertainty. You know, it's hard to discuss the things you don't know about. And it's pretty difficult to talk about in probabilistic terms, outcomes that you can't assign probabilities to. So I was very captivated by this originally. And then that's what, that's what I built off, I guess, that theory, that mm-hmm. distinction. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you ever encountered this element of it, but I years ago wrote that Austrians need to, so even though, yes, they make, you know, they acknowledge these distinctions and certainly one could argue that, oh, Mises did a lot to show why uncertainty was so important, you know, like entrepreneurship, you know, and what does it mean when you earn profits? You know, oh, you better adjusted the uh, means of production to satisfy consumer wants than the next person did and that sort of thing. But like, I was just coming up with simple examples like, oh, if, um, like if a hedge fund is really leveraged and they have great returns, and normal people would say, okay, yeah, you, you know, you earned a bunch of profit this year, but what you did was very risky. Like just speaking colloquially, that's what they would say. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you keep doing that, you're going to blow up eventually. Your luck's going to run out. And so it's not clear, you know, so like in the Mises Rothbard framework, it seems like you would have to say, oh yeah, that hedge fund that earned 300% returns because they got hyper leveraged. 
and then you know the current the currencies in Brazil didn't move too much, so that's how they didn't blow up. But if it did move, they would be done. Mm-hmm. You would have to say, oh yes, they best serve the the desires of the preferences of the consumers, and it's not clear to me that that is really the way you want to talk about, or at least there's more nuance. So things like that, where I was just encouraging yeah. Austrians to move beyond just to talk about the evenly rotating economy on the one hand, and then the open-ended world of uncertainty where, you know, profit means you did a good job. So Yeah, well, that's the thing is finding a balance because on the one hand, we have a nice equilibrium, we Austrians, we have a nice equilibrium construct to understand what's, what's happening when everything is at a standstill as the evenly rotating economy. And then on the other hand, you know, if... Austrian is kind of this, Austrianism is kind of this wide range, right? There's like a spectrum of people that are on it. But at the extreme other end, you've got this completely unbounded, uncertain, can't say anything about anything. I'm thinking of radical subjectivists Mm -hmm. like Chappell or Lachman. And our job is to be more grounded. Like, okay, the world's pretty, the world's your oyster. You can, you know, be creative and think of ideas and embrace this up you know, face this uncertainty. But at the same time, most of us don't work in this unbounded world, right? We're somewhere in the middle where we understand there's there's a world that exists right now, a state of business that exists right now that the evenly rotating economy, I think on a day-to-day basis, you can use that to kind of understand what's going on. And then there's a lot of entrepreneurship that's facing the extreme uncertainty out there, but most of us are not at one side or the other. We're, we're in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Most things, I guess what I'm trying to say is most of our, business opportunities or decisions that are in front of us are fairly bounded, Mm -hmm. right? They're not complete unknowns. And so that was, I had to build off that a little bit as well to try to say, okay, well, when we're pricing financial assets, you know, a financial asset is, is, is just a claim to a sum of money. We'll deal with equities, right? So you have a claim to the assets that a business earns, or you have a claim to its future cash flows. And, um, those future cash flows in, in some sense, they're path dependent, like there's assets and there's lines of business that the, the firm is already working in that are determining its profitability. And then you're going to be paid out dividends from that current profitability. And then at the same time, we've got this open-ended universe where the firm could move into new areas and, and exercise real entrepreneurship, discovering things that the market doesn't have right now. And so we need to price out the stock in light of those things we know and the things we don't know, right? And the things we do know, again, that's that's the path dependency I'm talking about where the company has its operations, it's got its assets. It's in the structure of production, so to speak. And then it's also open-ended because it can be creative and do things that nobody's doing before. So how do you, how do you best price a financial asset that takes both of those factors into account? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, did, did you, I mean... Did, is that is one of the things you did in your dissertation? Did you recast standard Austrian business cycle theory, including asset prices? Yeah, well, I took a bit of a strange approach. Um, so the approach that I took was I started with a foundation of entrepreneurship. I've never published it, by the way, because I've been thinking over it, thinking it over for about a decade now. And I used, I'll just, before I delve into it, I used my dissertation I taught a grad level corporate finance class twice. And I used my dissertation as the text for it and it went very well. And um, for about a decade, I like to think things over. I'm also slow moving. So I, I've been thinking about 
is the exposition is the order in which I'm presenting everything since there's a lot of moving pieces when you when you go into corporate finance mm-hmm. and asset pricing you know is the is the order of how all the ideas are presented is it optimal because if it's if it's it won't make sense if if everything's not in the right order so so I'm getting closer to getting it in the right order I guess is what I'm saying so where I came from was my foundation is that you know a, a stock's price today is the the most straightforward, simplest way that you can price it is is with a basic discount model. So you have you have a stream of earnings in the future that you want to discount back to the present. In which case, there's only three things that matter: how much earnings the company can generate, what your rate of return is, the required rate of return, and what the growth rate of those earnings is going to be. Right, and basically, you can distill any factor that affects a stock's price into those three factors. So for and that's that's pretty mainstream but i think that's also a nice simplistic way to think about stock prices which everything does fall into those three categories so that was my my framework those three categories and then the question was how can how does austrian economics view each of those three categories of determining a stock's price earnings the required rate of return and the gross rate of earnings how does it differ from the mainstream so for the earnings pillar that's where i built from the structure of production looking at stage-specific profitability, incorporating the evenly rotating economy to look at, well, what's the path that these earnings have to take into the future? If you have one stage, like mining, mm-hmm. let's say, which is incredibly profitable for whatever reason, obviously there's an equilibration that has to happen moving forward where it becomes a little bit less profitable or the other, the other stages catch up. And so it was incorporating this idea of stage-specific businesses in specific stages along the structure of production and in very broad terms where you are in the structure of production is determining your your profitability or your earnings today and then of course we've got a whole austrian business cycle theory which is dealing with things that are going to change you know that structure of production and the, the relative earnings at each stage so that was that was a part of it on growth theory that's kind of an extension of it and that's really where austrian business cycle theory i used it as a new direction which is Looking at the um, this equilibration process, if you've got one stage which is incredibly profitable, you know, or more profitable than other stages, obviously the relative growth rates in all those stages have to adjust, and so the growth rate of earnings can also be something that's teased out of the structure of production. And then the required rate of return, um, you know, normally we look at at close substitutes, so we say, okay, well, you know, an investor either holds stocks or bonds normally, and, and bonds pay a rate of interest that you know ahead of time, and, and stocks don't. And so, in one sense, your you know your required rate of return on stocks is, is analogous to a, a rate of return on a bond, and then you've got risk factors that play a role, and you know duration risks with bonds and things like that. And so, in this case, what I what I did was I went back to Wixell because Wixell. You know, initially, when he was talking about the natural rate of interest, um, and Wixell was was trying to come up with a theory of inflation. If you remember, that's not that's different. He's not in the quantity theory of money camp as that being the explanation for for inflation. He's looking for an alternative explanation. So he develops this idea of the natural rate of interest that when it gets unhinged from where it should be, that that puts in this cumulative process that generates inflation or, or deflation even. And of course, Austrians use this. This is, you know, one of the one of the pillars of Austrian business cycle theory. And I used it to talk about required rates of return on investments. That there's natural rates, and then there's market rates that are actually created. 
And when there's a disconnect between the two of those, then you have inflation and financial asset prices, just like you would in real capital goods. But the, the mechanism that it happens is a little bit different. And, um, and I, when I was done, it was, I thought it was quite consistent with what Wixell was originally saying, because he really, so it seems to me, phrases things a lot of times in terms of financial assets, maybe not actual capital goods, which is how Austrians use him more, more frequently. So anyway, that was, that's more than the elevator pitch, but that's kind of the basis of mm-hmm. the general approach that I took. Okay. Um, and so then maybe transitioning to your more recent stuff, I understand you're writing, you're, you're doing, you know, I, I was told Austrians don't try to forecast, but you said, no, I'm doing it. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. So, so everybody wants to forecast, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the challenge with forecasting is, well, the challenge with forecasting is um, what kind of forecast do you want? Do you want the forecast of things that you think are going to happen in the mundane sense of the word, things that you think are very likely to happen? Or do you want to forecast the low probability tail risks, mm-hmm. right? In other words, like when you read, my new project is working on on forecasts of financial asset prices. But if you read, you know, somebody who's who's writing about stock prices and where they're going to go, do you want to read that person talking about what's likely going to happen, but is is kind of normal? Like most most analysts that you read are basically just extrapolating, you know, what happened this year, one more year out to the future. They're not rocking the boat all that much because probably we're just going to continue whatever path that we're on, right? Or do you want to read somebody who's talking about very low probability extreme events at the tails of your risk distribution because those extreme events they're going to make you or break you Mm -hmm. and so so that's i just have to say that because that's kind of my background on on how i think about forecasts and i think most people should be thinking about forecasts can i interrupt you for a second david and i read i'm I'm not going to get the exact quote but i remember nassim taleb probably in the black swan. I mean, I read a few of his books, but I think it was in the black swan. Said something like he used to get frustrated. He'd be sitting around a table with, you know, I, I don't remember where he was working, but, you know, a bunch of people who were in the financial sector and they would be asking everybody, what do we think the market's going to do next week? And he was upset because they were all just given a single like, oh, it's going to be up or it's going to be down, you know, percentage wise. And he was saying, well, no, I mean, where I'm coming from is more like, I think probably it will be up 2% but there's a decent chance it's going to crash more than 20. And that's important, you know, you know that, that nuance. That's, exa- that's exactly it. And I have him in mind when I'm, when I'm phrasing it in this way, because on the one hand, most of the time, the mundane blah forecast is going to be correct. Mm-hmm. But when it's not correct, it's really, really painful. So do you want to be more or less correct much of the time, but suffer extreme risks? When you don't take into account that you know these tail risks, these black swans, and things like that, or um, would you rather be right about the black swans but lose out on all of the normal things that are happening? And so, an analogy—I'll get into the research a little bit and what I'm working on. But an analogy that I, that springs to mind is now with the retros, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the the stock market was pretty overvalued, you know, from about '98 to 2000 couple of years before that that peak and it's it now with the benefit of hindsight it was pretty overvalued 0607 right so if you people who just invested like nothing was going wrong they did okay right they got wiped out when the crash happened but they got to participate in a lot of good 
years leading up to it or good months leading up to it. And then there's there's people who were really scared about the crash because they saw this big low probability risk happening, like a tail risk or a black swan. But that if they exited the market, then they didn't get to take advantage of you know the returns, the normal returns or even above normal returns that would have happened just leading up to the crash. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is if you thought in 1998 that the stock market is overvalued and it peaks out in, in 2000, right? If you thought in 1998 it's overvalued, so you just decide to, to get out, well, you just missed out on the two greatest years of an investment mania ever. Mm-hmm. And you need a pretty you needed a pretty big crash to wipe out all those gains that you would have earned in those two years. So you you know you don't have to put up with the pain of the crash, but at the same time you missed out on a lot of gains. And so my the project that I'm at right now is trying to balance these two risks. Mm-hmm. How do you take into account the fact that most of the time the economy and the financial economy and the stock market will say functions like it always did, like normal situations, and then there's a very small percentage of the time where we get these tail risks that are devastating. And that's what I'm trying to balance out. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the discussion to once again mention that the more you give, the more you get. I really appreciate all the contributions you folks have been sending. And uh, feel free to do more. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to send more or to do it for the first time. If you're squeamish, it's really not that hard. You can do it. Also, for those of you who can't contribute financially, what you can do instead of that is anytime I have an episode that you think might be something your friends or coworkers would want to listen to or even just to challenge them, go ahead and send it along. That's the way we grow. Thanks for listening, everybody. And now let's get back to the show. Are you familiar, Dave, with Mark Spitznagel? Yeah, I know. I know of him. Okay, yeah. So he, in his, he, he wrote a book, um, The Dow of Capital, that was very heavily Austrian. He he worked in some Bombaverkian capital theory and things like that under there, and he, and he wasn't bluffing. Like he really read the stuff and understood it, and uh, and so yeah, his his solution, generally, you know, broadly speaking, to what you're talking about was like, yeah, you're long the stock market, but then you have deeply out of the money. What would it be? Put options, things like. I mean, obviously, what he didn't practice was way more sophisticated, but the kind of thing where, so yeah, the market goes up you don't earn quite as much as your rivals who just have no protection. But then on the off chance that it goes down 15% or something in a week, you make a boatload of money from your options. Whereas everybody else is just like, oh, we're down 15%. That's it. And, you know, Austrians by and large, um, they're, they're right, but they're too early. Mm-hmm. And so they know there's something wrong going on. Like in a standard Austrian business cycle, you, you understand there's something wrong, something not right. You know what the end game is. You know it's going to be bad or you have a feeling it's going to be bad. So you, you exit the market completely and then you end up missing out on the boom. And okay, that's great. You didn't get caught in the collapse, but you also missed out on the boom. And you need to, you need to balance those two things, right? You need to participate a little bit. You need to expose yourself to the normal events and protect yourself from these, these tail risks. Mm-hmm. And then Spitznagel is trying to not just protect from the tail risks, but also then take advantage of the tail risks, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's really challenging. But I think Austrians, if you can be really well grounded and not get too emotional about things, and that's kind of tip number one in financial markets is, you know, they're just pieces of paper. And they don't know if you buy or sell them, so don't get too attached and you know don't get emotional about things. But if you're grounded and you, you know, you use the theory, it's it's incredibly informative and 
in shaping your investment decisions and then and then securing superior returns. So my my latest project is is kind of going in that direction of what does how does Austrian economics inform our investment decisions and how can we balance these two types of risks, right? The normal mm-hmm. mundane risks and then these large extreme tail risks. Because I like that, that it's, you're right, on the one hand, you know, Mises, in other words, this might be apocryphal, but my understanding is Mises, when he proposed to Margate, said something like, although I study money, I'm never going to have much of it or, or something like that. You know, it's not trying to say, that's what the entrepreneurs do. I'm just over here as the, you know, economist explaining what they do. And, you know, I can't forecast better. And, you know, whenever things blow up, you know, Austin, Walter Block is real adamant about this. Like, I remember we were on a panel, at, you know, Mises, you at the end of, near the end of the week when we, there's the two panels and the crowd just throws us questions and somebody was like, oh, what do you think is going to happen to gold? Or what do you think is going to happen to real estate? You know, blah, blah, zero. But, and Walter would always, you know, very safely say, hey, I'm an economist, you know, go ask Peter Schiff or go ask, uh, you, know, you know, Jim Rogers what you think. That's what they, what they do is they're in the, but then on the other hand, there is this sense of if Austrian business cycle theory is true and moreover, if most investors apparently don't listen to it, you know, doesn't it at least, you know, give you an idea of when there is a huge bubble? So yeah, it doesn't necessarily tell you when the bubble's going to pop, but surely that would help you to know that, yeah, these prices are completely out of whack and to know that, oh, and why would they be? Well, because the Fed's doing crazy stuff over here. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And so, um, and you know, while you were telling the story about Mises proposing, I was thinking that, you know, the joke about being unemployed is that the hours are great, but the pace sucks. <laughs> and so when you think, I was thinking about it, that's, that's kind of being a professor. The hours are great, but the pay, the pay kind of sucks by comparison. So it's better than being unemployed, I guess. Mm. <laughs> Um, so the, although socially, maybe it'd be better if most professors were actually unemployed, but yeah, that's, you're, you're probably right about that. Of course, at least they're all holed up in universities. So, you know, they don't, they're constrained, right? It's like a prison. It's not an ivory tower. It's an ivory prison. Um, so I guess the approach that I took was that if you look at, if you look at stock prices over time, and that I guess the best mainstream way of looking at things is that you know, they're a random walk with a drift. They're all over the place and we can't really predict them. This is, you know, going back to Chicago school. But there's a little bit of a drift, right? There's there's a direction involved. Maybe that drift is inflation, like prices are going up, all prices are going up, including stock prices. And so I guess my foundation now is I, I had the theory and I wanted to put it into practice. And the approach that I'm taking is that there's a drift and the drift is mostly determined by inflation. Right, like all inflation is is raising up all prices, whether it's cars or shirts or or claims to businesses that make those things. And then there seems to be a lot of oscillation going on. And oscillation is kind of your business cycles, where you have your stock market booms and and high valuations, and then you have busts that are completely overcompensating. Like in in retrospect, how cheap was the stock market in two thousand and nine? Right, and it didn't seem like that at the time. It was it was tough for us to understand how cheap it was at the time, but now we understand that it was. And so the, the market is, it's searching for its value, but it's, it's oscillating around this value. So it's, it's overshooting during booms and then it's, it's undershooting during busts. And those are your stock market cycles. And in my approach, they're mainly driven by cycles in the underlying economies, which are best understood by, by Austrian business cycle theory. So we've got these shifts along the structure of production. We've got changes in company profitability. It's being reflected in stock prices. 
And when things are good, stocks are really, really good. And then when things are bad, stocks are really, really bad, right? They overcompensate on both sides. And so the, the trouble is, how do you take advantage of them when they're really bad? And how, do you, how can you know when they're really good? So you said it earlier when you were talking about FAMA and Chicago School, you know, this idea that there's no bubble because if there was a bubble, people would be selling and then we wouldn't be in a bubble anymore, right? If, if everybody thought that or even if a sufficient number of people um, thought that. And so it's true. It's really difficult to say that you're in a bubble. And Austrians, we say it oftentimes or we'll say, you know, we're in an unsustainable boom. That'll be kind of our terminology mm. to describe this. But an unsustainable boom can go on an awful long time. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, if you're not participating, then you're incurring the opportunity cost and you're losing out on, on that portion of the boom. So you need a way to, you need a way to say, okay, this is a boom, but it's kind of reasonable. And this is a boom that's now out of hand. And I don't see a way that this is going to end well. So again, I'm going back to my, you know, with forecasters, we care about these mundane average forecasts, the normal forecasts, like, okay, this is, this is a boom, but it's kind of reasonable versus, okay, now this is out of hand and there's a lot of tail risk and, and we need to get out of this now. And it, so it seems to me your average person who understands Austrian business cycle theory exercises a large degree of caution because they focus on the tail risk and the bust, mm-hmm. but that, which is fine. Avoiding, avoiding losses is really great, but you also need to earn, you know, you need to shoulder a bit of risk to earn some uh, return along the way. And so my foundation is, you know, this idea that stocks are going through these valuation cycles. A stock price, or I focus in my work on on broad-based equity indexes, and I'll explain why in a moment, but when you look at an index like the S&P 500, it's, that index is really trying to find some value, whether you want to call it fair value or whatever, it doesn't much matter. And there's periods of time where it's overshooting and it's too expensive and it's mean reverting. So then you have a bust or you have, you know, sluggish returns where it gets back to the mean, but it doesn't just go back to the mean. It, it usually undershoots it, right? Mm-hmm. People get scared and people, you know, lose their nerve and they get out of the market. And so we've got this, we've got these cycles going on. And then the key is just trying to figure out, well, where in a cycle are we? How can we say that? What are the best ways that we can say it? And then what's the implication for future returns? So that's my, that's methodologically my foundation. Um, I just want to make one more comment and then I'll, I'll let you jump in here. But uh, I focus on broad-based indexes because I make a distinction between technically analyzing a market versus um, being more entrepreneurial in it. So when you buy a stock, you are making, when you buy a, a specific stock, you are making a statement or a judgment about that specific business, its current lines of business and profitability, its potential future lines of business and profitability. It's all focused on that specific stock. Now, that means that you have to know something about the supply and demand conditions for that specific company and the industry that it works in. But it's all very entrepreneurial because you're focusing on that specific business, right? You're saying, in other words, that you understand this business and what what it means for that stock's price more than anybody else out there. So I that's that's very entrepreneurial. And in general, people are terrible at picking stocks, right? Mm-hmm. The worst. Well, obviously, on average, nobody nobody wins by picking stocks. There's some people who win. Then there's lots of people who lose, and the average is just the average. And so um, I focus on indexes because I say, well, there's I don't know who's making money in the economy. I don't know if it's going to be Facebook, and I don't know if it's going to be Ford. You know, and I don't know if it's going to be next era energy, 
but somebody's making money in this economy. We've got an aggregate amount of income that we're working with, and it's not my job to pick and choose the winners or the losers. My job is to pick and choose the trend, to point out the trend, and can we reasonably expect that trend to go up or can we reasonably expect the trend to go down? And when you when you look at most of the research on investing, I mean, there's it's kind of offensive to say it, but you know the the typical mainstream economist advice that you get is buy the index, buy a low cost index fund, and that's it, right? And don't don't pick and choose and don't try to time the market and things like that. And you know historically, if if you do that, you did pretty darn well. And if you're picking and choosing and, and trying to time the market, you do pretty poorly. So. So what I'm trying to do is balance all the research that shows that, you know, just participating in the market and not trying to pick and choose specific tops or bottoms, you know, and try to reduce costs to the full extent. I'm trying to balance that against the fact that in Austrian business cycle theory, we have some pretty clear evidence to suggest that this is getting to be a top mm-hmm. and this, this is a bottom. So inform ourselves as to, as to when is a good time to get in or out of the market. But in general, when I say the market, I mean in a broad index, not picking and choosing who you think tomorrow's winner is going to be. Because if you're doing that, you should be an entrepreneur actually being the winner or the loser, not just picking the stocks, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see reason to believe that an investor would be better at being an entrepreneur than the actual entrepreneur. So what are your thoughts? We're kind of coming up here on the time I asked you for. So maybe this will be the last topic we hit here. There's a school of thought, well, this the Chicago school is coming out of there, but it, it, more narrowly focused on these issues where it's um they almost go out of their way to to make you realize that no, there's there's no such thing as like a good investor. Like you think Warren Buffett knows what he's doing and he has this innate or I mean it's not innate, developed skill to better pick like no, he doesn't, because look at his things and blah, blah, blah. And then and yeah, he did well for these 30 years, but then in the last he did this. And so therefore, really, it's just a bunch of monkeys typing on typewriters. And of course, occasionally they produce Hamlet. And in case the listener thinks I'm exaggerating, I'm I'm actually not. Like they talk like that. And I'll even give a link. Um, so folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 201. Recently, I don't know if you follow this stuff, um, Dave, but Tyler Cowen has like an interview series where it's, I think it's called Conversations with Tyler. And he had John Cochran on. And it's it's hilarious because Cochran, he's a real smart guy. He knows all this literature and they just go through it and Tyler just brings up example after example where it looks like what the market's doing is kind of nutty. And Cochran, he's like, so isn't this an efficiency? And he goes, no, 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 that's efficient. And he'll just go through and explain why everything all makes sense. And then also too, there's a there's like an almost inherent contradiction because it's like, yeah, the, the Chicago school tells everybody, don't put your money with an active fund manager. That's just stupid. They, they can't beat the market. And yet their own theory, and Cochran kind of admits this, there needs to be some people out there actively doing research and picking stocks. Otherwise, the market can't be efficient. And so it's almost like there's this inherent contradiction and they go, oh, well, yeah, we kind of know that. But but in general, you know, they're active fund managers. That's just you're wasting money on their fees. Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of the paradox about the efficient market hypothesis is that on the one hand, if the market's efficient, you know, you just accept the prices as they are and that's that's it. On the other hand, though, obviously not everybody can think like that because you need somebody who's actively participating to create those prices. And that the passive investment crowd, and this is, it's becoming, um, people are noting this problem a little bit as, as the, the passive investment crowd 
and kind of the growth of low cost ETF, you know, index ETFs grows. Well, if, if everybody's just buying, buying the index and nobody's actively trying to punish the bad companies or reward the good ones, then, then what's, what's going on here? How's, you know, there's no, how's the market equilibrating if, if mm-hmm. nobody's actually actively trying to equilibrate it? So it doesn't surprise me that Eugene Fama's son-in-law would take that stance. Is that, is that what Hu Cochran is? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So that's, and, and that's a typical Chicago school stance. Um, but at the, and at the same time, you know, when you say like with Warren Buffett, oh, he was just lucky, right? He's just been lucky for, I don't know, 50 years mm-hmm. straight on average, um, which, okay, that could happen. Probabilistically, you can have just a handful of people who are very lucky. So, so you're not mischaracterizing them on, in that way. Um, on the other hand, you know, Warren Buffett, I think is kind of interesting because, and this gets back to my original research question, when Warren Buffett buys, when he invests, he buys stocks, but he buys companies, like he buys the real assets, right? He's not just, not just playing the market like you and me, where, you know, we buy 0.00001% of Ford. Mm -hmm. He, he buys the company basically. And, and then he holds it for the long run. And so, He's kind of an interesting example because on, on the one hand, he's got some skill. But on the other hand, the skill set that he's using is not the skill set that the typical investor is using. He's not buying the financial assets. And, you know, he's not, he's not getting all caught up in the ebbs and flows of the market. Like he's not selling like everybody else at the bottom of the market. He's, he, he bought Coca-Cola in the 70s and he's holding on to it still, right? And, you know, things like that. And so he's, he's an investor for the long haul. Um, who's actually investing in, in real companies. And so when I said earlier, your average investor, um, you know, who's buying actual companies, individual companies, he's making this claim that he knows something about the individual business and the future direction of its earnings and things like that. He, in other words, he is thinking he's a better entrepreneur than the actual entrepreneur in the business. Um, that's kind of like Buffett. He's actually that investor that does that because he understands the business. Mm-hmm. He understands people really well because I think he would even say, you know, my, his best contribution is not buying businesses, but buying people, right? He's got great managers and he's very entrepreneurial in that way, but that's very much different from your average investor. And yeah. he, he benefited as a result. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that's certainly good to explain further why, you know, if his apparent success which is not just because, oh yeah, he just kept rolling dice and, you know, I mean, and you're right. It is the Chicago school approach. It's not that it's demonstrably false. Like they do have a paradigm and yeah, if there were billions of people rolling dice, you would get one guy that just rolled a six, 300 times in a row. Like that statistically would happen. And then he would think he had this magic, you know, hot hand. Well, nope, nope. That's just statistics and random. <laughs> but that's it. on the other hand, it's entirely reasonable to say, no, some people are better at forecasting than others and they get rewarded in the market. It doesn't mean they have to have a flawless track record, but. like, Well, by the way, with Warren Buffett, with value investing in general, it's not like it's a closely guarded secret, right? I mean, the Bible's been out there since the thirties, Graham and Dodd. Everybody can read it. Buffett doesn't make it any secret what he's doing, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's on the one hand, you'd think it's completely replicable what he's doing. There's no secrets at all. In fact, exactly the opposite, right? It's very transparent about what it is that he's doing. 
but for some reason, in, in actual fact, it's it's not very replicable because very few people have been able to pull off what he's done or what a lot of great investors have been doing. And so there's an element that he's got, which I don't think is commonly recognized. And it, it certainly doesn't fall under the general umbrella, I would say, of what we think of as value investing. But he is bringing something to the table, which is very entrepreneurial, which he has got mm-hmm. and and other people do not have. And so again, the, you know, the Chicago crowd, you got to recognize that they need to recognize, yeah, it's not just luck and it's not a hot hand. It's an actual entrepreneurial contribution that he's making. Because if it was just value investing and, you know, an application of some principles, some basic principles, which is, you know, what everybody thinks it is, then everybody would be doing it. And then if everybody's doing it, well, then, you know, in the Chicago school, nobody would have to be doing it because we just all buy the index and be done with it. Right, right. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for people who are entering grad school, let's say, and love Austrian economics, but they realize I, I have to be able to earn a living too doing this. And if I'm going to become an academic, I have to publish stuff that's of interest to more people than just Dave Howden. Yeah, well, I took a very unorthodox path that I'm, because I came to Spain on a whim. I didn't really, you know, now young people, you probably see it, Bob, young people, they like planning things out so far in advance and they got to have all their ducks in a row and they're very risk averse. And I see it in my students, you know, they have all their internships lined up and, you know, everything's got to be perfect for them and they're so scared to just take a chance. And, and so I'm very cognizant of the fact that that is not what I did at all and it worked out for me, but I'm like a tail risk. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't generalize from what I did and say it's going to work out for you. Because I get people emailing me all the time saying something like that. I mm-hmm. want to do what you did, and you know how can I how can I do it? And I try to warn them like, well, it's probably not going to pan out exactly like you think it's going to be. But you know, if you want to become an academic, an economist, you know, the general rule of thumb is go to the best grad school that that gives you funding. Right? Mm-hmm. You're going to get know what you're in line for. You're going to get bogged down. You're going to have to learn all the mainstream stuff. You're going to get bogged down. You're going to get you're not going to graduate and then be independent where you can just research whatever you want. You've got to toe the line to stay employed and make yourself employable and things like that. It's a difficult, it's a difficult game. At the same time, it's not, it's not impossible. And I actually think it's relatively easy. I mean, relative to the past, being a young Austrian today. Like if I look at the state of economics in the 1970s or the 1980s, where it's, it is much more technical than it is today. I mean, the tools are less developed by their own standards, but it's it's much more formalized and technical. I would hate to be an Austrian economist, or I would have hated being an Austrian economist looking for a job around, you know, 1981. Mm-hmm. Also, the economy was kind of in the pits, so that's a contributing factor. But, you know, today, people are a little bit more open to outside-the-box thinking. And even within the mainstream, there's, there's areas that you can go into. I don't personally like the strategy where Austrian economists say, well, I'm going to be sneaky, and so I'm going to get into institutional economics so that I can, you know, do my quasi Austrian stuff, but also be quasi mainstream because doing half, you know, having one foot in each camp doesn't seem to be working so well for most people. And it's not really a fruitful research regime either. And so I think you should be, I don't want to say unabashedly Austrian, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of great contributions that can be made and there's obviously a lot of problems with mainstream econ that even mainstream economists know about. Like, for example, when I got into this whole thing, when I did my PhD, one of the 
one of the biggest changes that happened in light of the financial crisis for mainstream economics was strengthening the linkage between the financial sector and, and the real economy, right? And everybody was kind of searching for channels through which the financial side of things was affecting the real economy because the models didn't really have that as their as their central point before the crisis. And that's why a lot of people were so blindsided by it because, okay, the stock market is doing something, but it's not obvious why that should be affecting or the credit market's doing something, but it's not really obvious why that should be putting the housing market out of whack or, you know, the, the, the automotive industry out of whack or anything like that. So the mainstream, you know, over the last, what, decade, a little bit longer, has really been searching for this financial linkage in the macro economy. And that's, the Austrians already had it because the nub and kernel of the Austrian business cycle theory is how the flow of credit affects the real economy. So we've already got it in there. And then my kind of contribution that I've, that I've been working on, not publishing so much in this, in this area, but I've been thinking a lot about it and, and we'll get to it, came out of my PhD thesis, which was we got the credit market, but then we also have, we also have other financial markets, which we don't really talk about at all in Austrian business cycle theory, like, like the stock market or the bond market, right? Mm-hmm. Or the derivatives market. And so, so what I'm trying to say is there's great contributions that Austrians can do that are, that are completely aligned with what the mainstream itself is trying to do, right? And you saw this coming out of the crisis. So I'll, I'll just mention briefly. Remember, there was papers that would come out of you know, the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, and the World Bank. There'd be research papers every now and again that were very positive towards Austrian business cycle theory. Like William White was a, you know, a noted economist at the BIS 10 years ago. He made a bit of a splash because he was talking about the positive attributes of Austrian business cycle theory. And the reason why to me is, is pretty obvious because Austrian business cycle theory has that strong financial economy link. The credit markets are so central to it. It's so obvious why that matters, but it's not, it's not obvious to everybody. Mm-hmm. But that's what, that's what differentiates us from mainstream economists, and that's what makes us special and gives us a leg up. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said there. So, folks, uh, the links you can get for other things Dave and I have talked about are available at bobmurphyshow.com slash 201. My guest has been David Howden. Dave, thanks so much for your time and your, uh, your wisdom. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.